Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we are geared up for another show after a week off uh, while I was on break. Uh, we had a good um, vacation with my family, but it's time to get back into the saddle. We've got a lot going on and a lot of great guests lined up in the coming weeks for you. So I'm looking forward to getting the show rolling again. And uh, in order to do that, we've got to bring in my esteemed co-host, Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hi, Jamie. Well, I'm glad somebody got a vacation because Becky and I have been working our tails off. But, you know, that's kind of how it works some days. So, Becky, there's there's been some weird stuff going on in the weather. Uh, we, well, weather, et cetera. We've had uh, some major earthquakes somewhere that I didn't have a chance to really research. And uh, I got a, a, a little message from uh, Dan Zaner tonight in Indiana saying that they had tornado warnings. But since then, it's it's gotten better. But he said there was a big one about around Petersburg, Indiana. You didn't know anything about that? I, I'm just now seeing that. I was out uh, at a softball this evening, so I'm not in touch with the most recent stuff that's happening. But I, I do see there was a confirmed large and extremely dangerous tornado reported east of Petersburg Thursday evening. So that's interesting. I'll have to look more into that. Um, yeah, but overall, it's a pretty active pattern across the U.S. right now. Um, you know, rain, storms all across the midsection these last day or two, and that's going to move into the eastern seaboard tomorrow. So Carolina's up through New England, has a chance for storms, maybe some severe weather in there, definitely a chance for heavy rain, flooding rainfall. Um, and then, of course, you have the holiday weekend. Uh, could be hit or miss across across the northeast. Um, definitely could be some rain, could be you know, chances for drizzly weather, but overall warm and mostly dry, um, especially from like Sunday, Monday onward. Well, well, Adam wants to know when it'll quit raining in St. Louis. <laughs> Soon, <with> the fronts, <laughs> the fronts through St. Louis. So you should be done by rain at no later than tomorrow morning. There you go, Adam. So, <laughs> so Adam is one of the very interesting people I've met through our IDMC thing we're doing here, uh, our humanitarian effort. And by the way, Jamie, I didn't tell you, our newest collaborator is Trek Medics. And uh, we'll have Jason on in the next couple sessions. I think he's next week. So that that's exciting. We'll be talking more about that. Um, but Adam is also in St. Louis, and he's from the Human Trafficking Collaborative Network. And uh, we did a little video with... Uh, himself, one of his people, and our doc, Brian Fulke. And we're going to talk a little bit, because this isn't something we've talked a lot about, and it's reared its ugly head, of course, because of the war effort. But, you know, this is a lot of good stuff for people to know, even though they may think they never will see this. Well, if they do, then they need to know what it is. So, Adam, first of all, you know, introduce yourself in more detail. Tell them about who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So as she touched on, my name is Adam. I have worked in fin crime, human trafficking specifically, for about the last, I guess, nine years now, uh, just past that that nine-year mark. So got my start in college, uh, really kind of got into this space in college. A, a really good friend of mine was a victim of human trafficking. And at the time, I really didn't know it, but we kind of built a relationship. She confided in me and Long story short, I ended up being a, a CI, for those who do not know, 
confidential informant, not a criminal informant. I'm not a criminal, <laughs> so, so no concerns there. Good to know. Confidential. I know. Confidential informant uh, helps law enforcement kind of piece together that case. Uh, it involves some of her family, which is it's bad enough this stuff happens. It's even worse when your own family is involved in it. So that was kind of my first real experience uh, in human trafficking and fin crime specifically. And for those who do not know what fin crime is, it's financial crimes. Uh, essentially, what I tell people is you follow the money, uh, the dirty money, not not your typical spending sprees, uh, the bad stuff, terrorist financing, human trafficking, all that good stuff. But the topic today, uh, like she touched on, is human trafficking. So I've done that for the last nine years. I've assisted governments, corporate companies, uh, accounting firms, fintech, and now the, the new and big hot craze around the world, cryptocurrencies, working with a few of those projects here and there on mitigating human trafficking and, and overall financial crimes on their platform. So that is a, a little bit of my career. It's taken me around the world in a sense, uh, Europe, America, Canada, Mexico, those areas have not been to Asia, but it certainly is a place that has impacted drastically, especially when we touch on, on natural disasters as well with all the typhoons, um, awful flooding, things that go on there. So human trafficking is a thing that reaches worldwide. It knows no boundaries, and it, it's really come to the forefront with the Ukraine crisis, but it is something that happens every day, really every second of every day. Someone is being trafficked or a victim of human trafficking in some sense. So that is my career. That is my background. Uh, I love what I do. And I've, I've told Sam this, and it's kind of the way I approach my work every day. It's not always easy to roll out of bed, get up, and get on with the day-to-day -day life of grind sometimes. But if I can help one person overcome being a victim of human trafficking or save them or prevent them from becoming a victim, you never know what that might individual might go on to do to better the world. And as we all know, uh, this world needs a lot of help right now. So that's kind of the mindset I take is just focusing on saving one person and you never know what they might go on to achieve. And I love that. Jamie, you have a question already for. Yeah. And, you know, I just, you know, you're talking about the scope of, of human trafficking and, and it just occurs to me that, you know, I, in, in the realm of what we discussed, uh, natural and man-made disasters that affect people that displace people that really anything, it occurs to me that might, cause somebody to be uh, displaced um, at, at need and at risk for housing or for food or for anything uh, really can, can put them at increased risk for human trafficking, I would imagine. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, I think Hollywood has kind of done a disservice to human trafficking. You think human trafficking in Hollywood, everyone seems to think the movie Taken, where some dad goes, Vigilante just destroys the world and, and aspirations of saving his daughter. But that's all well and good. Uh, human trafficking, like you touched on, isn't always just about that one individual who gets kidnapped. It's, it's slave labor. It's disasters that hit. And really before kind of agencies, whether it be local or federal, can get set up, uh, first responders really arrive and get things set up and organized, this is when Pimps, madams. Uh, madam is essentially a lady who either oversees a trafficking ring or works with pimps to control the victim. So it's kind of like a hierarchical chain of command to keep everyone in line. Uh, they will come in and they will be very calculated in how they go about things. They will search out for, like you touched on, those who are very lost, lonely, dazed, and confused, 
um, seeking some sort of shelter, a better place. And everyone wants to think Ukraine right now, but I think you can take this even with Hurricane Katrina, we've seen it, and a lot of the other awful natural disasters here in the U.S. and abroad, is when these things immediately hit, people's first thought is, one, where can I go? And two, how can I survive? And at that time, most people don't have that kind of Navy SEAL mindset to be able to adjust and just jump in and do what they need to do to survive and safely survive. Uh, their guard really can go down because they're looking for a way out. And that's when traffickers can really come in, pose as we've seen law enforcement, we've seen as volunteers. You think they're due to, there to help out and get good, get people to a good place, and they're really not. Or even as first responders. And first responders, people think just police, firefighters, EMTs, but also first responders in the human trafficking sense are physicians. Sometimes you're even your power and water teams. Around here, it's uh, American Water and Ameren. Those are some of the first people on the scene. And that's when people are really kind of wandering around looking for a place. And it's very easy at that time for someone to come and swoop in and give you this great promise of a, of a warm place, a warm meal, a bed to sleep on, oh, just for a day or two. And the next thing you know, you're, you're wake, you wake up in a world far worse than most people ever really come to realize exists. So, Becky, you have a question. Yeah, you know, it's it's directly in line with what Adam's talking about. It, it seems like they really capitalize on the vulnerability that people are feeling in that moment. And I'm I'm curious what the stats are of how how often does human tra trafficking occur in and around a disaster versus any other time? Um, and I have a follow up question once you answer that. <laughs> yep. So, and I've got a lot of materials. I'll send those over to Sam, and she can share them out if need be. But. Human trafficking happens 100% of the time, but during disasters, it's even more prevalent for a lot of the reasons you all have touched on, is that sense of safety and security and not really knowing where to go and who to trust and just wanting to get out of what seems like an unbearable situation. And oftentimes, uh, children are separated from parents, whether it's the advent of a tornado like we were just talking about or a, excuse me earthquake or hurricane or take Ukraine, for example, the men had to stay behind. So if it was a single dad, those children would have a number written on their hand or on their arm and a piece of paper and sent off to the border to try and find somewhere to go. So disasters are certainly, I'd say, the prime time for a victim to be trafficking. But I mean, it can happen at Disney World. Uh, just last week, it happened at a Dallas Mavericks basketball game. A young lady went to the bathroom with her father. Father waited outside. She didn't come out. Uh, he reported it. They assumed it was a runaway. A few weeks later, they found her being trafficked in Oklahoma. So it doesn't just have to happen in a disaster, but no doubt about it, the chaos is really when these pimps, these traffickers, uh, these awful people really thrive. And there are kind of three stages with the disasters. I'm sure you'll know kind of the beginning, the during, and the after. With the beginning, uh, the disruption in the cow, it makes it extremely easy to uh, kind of exploit those survivors, those who are seeking water, housing, food. And then during the disaster, really the bad people, uh, the pimps, the madams, and even those working with them will kind of engage themselves in these areas to try to maybe get access to uh, young females and children who might have been separated from their parents who still have not been reunited. Posing is... Um, it's tough to pose at a doctor at that point once kind of things have been established. The volunteer is certainly easy to 
the pose as because credentials are not always checked. Uh, the, the good word of, of mankind is not what it used to be, and people take advantage of that. And then after disasters, as things are kind of being rebuilt and cleaned up, a lot of these markets are still destroyed. Uh, labor is very cheap, and that's when not only trafficking for sex trafficking come in, but also slave labor takes its place, kind of rears its ugly head. So disasters, um, certainly the, the prime time to be a victim, but really it can happen anytime, any place in the world we live in. As if the disaster itself wasn't bad enough. You had a follow-up, Beck? Yeah, I guess in, in your opinion, in with the work you do, is this talked about enough? You know, we talk about emergency preparedness for disasters and having a go bag and your plan in place. And like, this has not really ever been a part of the common lexicon for for talking about disasters. So would you change that? Would you advise, you know, people in the emergency management profession to add this in as part of how they talk about disasters? Yeah, so funny you mentioned this. Uh, what was it? A few months ago, I'm, I was very curious. I, I won't throw them under the bus. Living in St. Louis, I went to the, one of the hospitals, and I walked into the ER and said, hey, I'm fine. I just have a question for you. And I'm like, do you have anybody here who knows anything about human trafficking? My goal was to see if anybody had been trained on. This is a major hospital. At the time, it was 2 p.m. in the afternoon. No one had received any training. Um, so then I asked my primary care. He's in his 70s. He's like, I have not, but back in my day when I was being taught, this wasn't something a lot of us were trained on. And now with COVID, that's the focus of a lot of these newer physicians and nurses and ERs and doctors. So per my kind of, I guess you could say, very low sample size, run-of-the-mill study I did by walking into one ER and nobody had any clue, I would say it's a huge area. Um, it's a little bit different with police and EMTs. They do seem to have some level of training, but I think because a lot of police do undergo a, a little bit of this sign understanding, and then also having worked with a lot of federal agents, a lot of these cases are much more high risk in the sense this is when the feds come in and kind of take over, and they're familiar with it. But unfortunately, the only way it gets to those feds is if it's escalated at a local local means, whether it be the police or the, the local hospital, first responders, stuff like that. So from my point of view, it is a, is a huge area of lacking. And I'm not saying in school you've got to give them a whole entire class on human trafficking in the medical profession, but I think there's it's certainly time to address it and some level of training needs to be done because while human trafficking is, is abuse, it's not just physical, it's also mental, and that's tough to detect. But there are, are a lot of signs, and this is something else I was going to touch on at a later point most likely as well. But that first responder or that position might be the only time that victim is one-on-one -on -one with somebody who might be able to pick up on something and ask them, hey, are you okay? Is something going on? They're not going to go to the police on their own for, for all the fear that's kind of been struck into them. So I believe, yes, it is time that every doctor, every nurse, every physician needs to at least be aware of the signs of human trafficking and the proper chains of reporting them. Becky, you mentioned what you put in the sidebar there, and then we'll go to Jamie for a comment. Yeah, I mean, I went through an entire master's course in emergency management, and one of the courses I took was social vulnerabilities of disasters. And I don't think this was mentioned. It's been four years now, but I do not think human mm -hmm. trafficking was ever mentioned as a part of a significant social vulnerability during a disaster. So that says a lot. Um, 
So I don't know. Just thank you for being on this podcast because I'm learning a lot. So <laughs> imagine our listeners yeah, and, are and, too. And off of that, I, I will say, <clears throat> excuse me, in a prior role, prior to COVID, we had seen one case of human trafficking. After COVID kind of kicked in and all these kids are online, everybody's hanging out online. Um, it, it's this way with a lot of bad things that happen in the world. The good people follow the rules. The bad guys, they don't care. They will find a way to get out, to get the job done, whatever it takes. So, so they're still going on about. They're still trapping people, taking advantage. And with every kid online, just with nothing else to do, we went from one human trafficking case in the entire time I had been there to hundreds of months. And it, it was at that point, that's kind of when I, I was like, the job I'm in, I'm like, all right, like, somebody's got to, to run with this. We've got to set up a special team to oversee that. And luckily that happened. But yeah, I think COVID, um, not only the, the terms of the death and a lot of the other negative impacts we're still feeling in the world with human trafficking, I think it's kind of the untalked about thing. And child exploitation is another thing is taking advantage of these young children online and stuff. It's, it's something prior to COVID. It was there. Um, it was not as prevalent, but now, I mean, from the work I do, it's more than prevalent. It's a part of everyday transactions and accounts we see online. Well, IDMC and HTCN will be working together in the future to get more word out on that. Jamie, you had a comment? Well, it goes to the training aspect of things. I I did uh, take a continuing education class in, in my last round of paramedic certification before I retired, um, which was eye-opening. Um, and one of the things, you know, you, you're you're very right um, in what you said about um, that opportunity to get somebody one-on-one is just so it seems to be so valuable uh, where you can uh, kind of get an answer to your suspicions or at least ask some questions about how safe the person feels and and see if you can pass that information along to the hospital where they have more resources to maybe separate people um, and, and help them get them specific resources to, to take them apart. But one of the things I remember from that training was how difficult it is to get one-on-one time because the trafficker is very aware of not leaving that person alone with a person of authority. Yep. Yep. And and, go ahead. No, I was just going to say some of the training I did, you know, you could use the, say there's an injury or there's some reason for them, you know, the first responders to have gone there. They can always use the, well, we have a rule that, you know, only the patient can be in the back which, you know, might work. And it, there may, that may be your opportunity to talk to this person. And then when you get to the hospital, call the police and let them know what you found. Because if they get there ahead of time, then everything's going to shut down. Would you yep. agree, Adam? And, and off of, I do. And off of the stats we were kind of, this is one area I do have stats on, is in between 2013 and 2017, uh, uh, the federal government did, did a study to see exactly how many trafficking victims at one point sought medical attention, and off of that, how many medical professions have had human trafficking training. 88% or more of human trafficking victims seek medical care at some point. However, only 3% of medical professionals they studied had had any sort of training. 
So you have an 85% or greater gap between somebody who needs help and people who really do not know what they are looking for. Um, and, the, and the signs are endless. I think a lot of us, we, we know the signs, whether it be in the physical terms of the bruises, the cuts, uh, the drug marks, kind of the substance abuse in the, in the arm vein area. We've all seen that. Uh, signs of, of rape, genital abuse. Those are kind of times when the physician is really going to be the only one who can see this. And on top of that, I mean, sometimes there are tattoos, brand markings, even things as crazy as a barcode to essentially scan the victim in a sense of control or monetizing them. So that position really might be the one and only person who gets through to them because I know Every time I go to the hospital, they ask me, if I'm with my wife, they ask me who, who my relationship with them. Sometimes they even ask for an ID. So I think it, it's a great way to kind of separate them, especially oftentimes it is a young female and a male. And you can usually get a pretty good sense of a quick glance, okay, something might be off. And that's really when you've got to trust your gut in just a few moments alone because that victim probably is not just going to come out and say, um, hey, I got this injury because I'm a victim of trafficking. But many physicians I met are fantastic communicators. They have a great way of connecting with the patient and really getting them to, to open up. And they don't have a lot of time, maybe 10, 15 minutes before uh, that individual control starts to think, like, we've been here a really long time. And granted, sometimes, I mean, they're there for broken bones, uh, broken teeth, um, pregnancy, even happens in trafficking, they get brought in. So there's a, a vast variety of reasons an individual who's being trafficked might come to seek medical attention. But if folks don't really know what to look for, it can be easily passed off as they're told to, hey, walk in here with a broken bone, say, oh, I, I fell off my bike or fell out of a tree or come up with some excuse the controller who really has complete mental control over them has told them to tell if it cannot be properly detected. Jamie? Yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting. The training that I got as a paramedic was related more to my safety. In other words, the discussion came up as a safety discussion for us to be situationally aware of that overbearing or overwatch of a trafficker on a victim um, and, and use um, appropriate means to separate them for our safety. Um and my training as a nurse, when I went to nursing school, there was very little discussion of it at all. So I, under, I can understand why there was this gap in the hospital um, awareness and training um, about trafficking, uh, because, you know, I didn't get any training in nursing school about it at all. Um, and the training in EMS was really focused on me, not the victims. Well, that's a good yeah, thing, too, it, though, yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to say, until I pursued this avenue on my own, and in all of my financial crime and all of my schooling, I was never told anything about human trafficking. So it seems to be kind of a very wide thing that it just is not something that, one, is talked about, and two, that folks are trained on. Yeah, and I feel bad because all of the years I taught EMTs and paramedics um, and firefighters and cops, it was never a thing. It was never anything we felt we needed to talk about. But let's look at the first responder going to a scene. What are some of the things that they might see as red flags? We talked about that guy who's going to be hovering over this female. We'll make that assumption. 
this person will probably not have any belongings, will probably not be using their real name. They won't have a cell phone. In some cases, they don't even know where they are because they move them around from place to place to place. Um, there's a lot of things like that that should really kind of, you know, raise the antenna. Can you, what other things can you think of, Adam? Yeah. So let's throw. A, let's say we've just had a hurricane hit. Uh, let's say let's use New Orleans for example. And and first responders are down there trying to kind of organize things. Uh, like you said, a lot of these cases, a lot of these individuals won't have anything to their names. And another thing with human trafficking victims. Is, is a massive language barrier. Uh, a lot of it is domestic, but at the same time, uh, this is one aspect. There are a lot of people brought over, whether it's on cargo ships or planes, to where that language barrier and that documentation no longer exists. So when that's the case, it's very difficult. But the first kind of clue that you can, can spot is if you're engaging with a, a male and a young female and you get the sense that something is off is, that female does not speak for themselves. Uh, that's, that's very odd. With, with young teen females, they're very susceptible to human trafficking uh, for a few reasons. One, they really just want to be loved. Two, they want attention. That's all things to back when we were teenagers. We wanted attention, and I'll, I, myself, I felt like I was invincible at times. Uh, that certainly wasn't the case, but that's the approach a lot of teenagers take. So they're quick to fall for some of these traps and stuff. And then next thing you know, they kind of land in this imaginable world of, of human trafficking. So we've got this male, we've got this young female. One, she really will not speak up for herself. Uh, every time a question is asked, she might, and a lot of it depends on where the, the male or even the madame, like I've said, this older female who's kind of overseeing maybe one female, one or a group of, of females. And also the one thing I want to mention is 80 to 90% of human trafficking victims are female, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist with males. So I'm using females just because it's the most common, but it certainly happens with young males as well. So yeah, the back to the, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Adam. Finish what you're saying. Yeah, I was just going to say, so if you ask her a question, uh, if that, that male is not right there next to her to answer it, she'll start kind of looking around. She won't answer you. She'll kind of start looking around because he's, he or she is there somewhere monitoring their actions, making sure they don't make a run for it. Or in some cases, I've even heard of earpieces being used or kind of microphones on the, on the clothing or in the phones to really understand, okay, what are they telling me? Do I need to move in or do I need to make a run for it? Stuff like that. So if they don't answer themselves directly, they might start looking around very kind of fidgety, looking for almost that okay to speak up or, get an idea of, okay, are they watching me? Is it okay to say something? Is not okay to say something? Because these victims are oftentimes under complete control, whether it's from the mental abuse or even being drugged, uh, the threat of, hey, if you go and tell someone, I'm going to kill your family, things like that. So that's when it's very important to try and get the victim to a safe space. And, and the one thing I do want to say as well is, if you feel you have identified human trafficking or think something is wrong, do not go and confront the controller. They are likely armed. Um, unless you've got extensive hand-to-hand -hand combat and know what you're doing, your best bet is to then go seek uh, law enforcement or some sort of help. Because likely in a disaster area, um, 
even when you have minor storms around here, the first folks I see out are often police and firefighters. Those are great people to go to right off the bat. So if you, if you have the sense human trafficking is going on, do not try to confront it yourself, or uh, not only will you probably make it worse for the, the poor victim, the individual, but in the process, you may also end up losing your life. Yeah, that's the safety aspect that Jamie was alluding to. Another thing, too, is the environment. If you walk in and you see a number of people there, that's a clue, because that generally does not happen. Um, but Jamie made a really important point in that training, too. You, as a first responder, and I kind of allude more to ambulance people, because those are the ones I train most often, may be the only link to this person getting out of there. So if you can get them in the back of the ambulance, use whatever excuse you can, and then just be honest with that person and say, look, here's what I think is going on. If you, if this is true, then you're safe here. We'll make sure you're safe at the hospital and we'll make sure that you get back to your family. Yeah, and often these human trafficking rings You'll have an individual one-on-one, -on -one, but oftentimes, let's say uh, a tornado hits a, a cluster of homes. If there's one particular house that maybe you notice 10 or 11 females come out of, that's, a, that's another sign something might be going on. And that's kind of when you've really got to either, A, if you know the area, great. If not, kind of ask around local law enforcement say, hey, something doesn't seem right. When we got here to assess the damage, we noticed 10 or 11 females who just didn't look completely healthy, whether it's kind of that mental or really the key I've always seen in my career is I call it the glazed eye look. It's almost like their their body has their soul has left their body. They're still living, but every time you look at them, it's like they're just looking into the abyss. They see no one, they experience no one, and that's often from the the drugs or the control and the abuse they've experienced. So those are always great telltale signs. It takes time to pick up on them. But the, the, those are really kind of at the heart of the moment. Some of the things you really pick up on on individuals who really may not be able to speak for themselves. And oftentimes, if, if you've got them, let's say you're at the ER and a, or even an EMT ambulance arrives to a house and a, a male or a female has all of the documentation for that individual, that's another sign that, okay, this person may not be making choices of their own free will. This person A here uh, has their passport or their ID cards, and especially traffickers often are not going to have an ID card. Let's say it's Chicago, Illinois. Uh, chances of them having an Illinois license with their hometown being Chicago, Illinois, possible, but very unlikely. It's called trafficking for a reason. They're moved around. So that's another great tip. If you're in Chicago, you go to a house and you see some IDs and you've got a Lithuanian passport, and then an ID from San Antonio, Texas. That might be a sign that, okay, something's not right here. We've got a, a wide variety of cultures coming out of this one area, and also they're not controlling their own documentation. Uh, one thing, too, uh, is you mentioned your cheat sheet. So I will see that Jamie gets the link for that, and he'll put it in the show notes so people have that as, as a reference. This is just something we've just hit the, you know, the tip of the proverbial iceberg here on what we can discuss. I'm glad we got as much out as we did. Is there anything the man on the street could notice that wouldn't be in a first responder situation, but 
you know, those people can also be helpful in going, you know, I saw this and it just didn't feel right. Yeah, and the thing you just touched on, I believe that it's the blue campaign, the little tip card. Um, a lot of my law enforcement buddies carry it. It's a great quick little resource for anyone to print off, throw on their dashboard, and it's just some quick indicators if you go to a disaster area what human trafficking might look like. But regarding everyday life, um, honestly, the, the best and number one thing is simply to pay attention. If you, next time you're out and about, just pay attention to how many folks' heads are buried in their phone. That's the world we live in. Um, I can't tell you how many times a day. I, I don't want to say purposely, but if someone's buried in their phone and I'm walking, I'm probably not going to get out of the way kind of a, hey, pay attention indicator. Uh, a lot of it is really just paying attention to our environment, being alert, being aware. And, and that's really what it comes down to because the chances of you at some point in your week seeing somebody who is involved in some means of human trafficking is usually very high, especially in your in your bigger city. So really there is no telltale sign to where if I'm not in public and let's say I see a young female with a, a bruised right eye. It's very wrong of me to make that assumption. She's a victim of human trafficking. But it's simply being alert to things that might look off. Like, let's say we're shopping at Old Navy. Uh, let's say I'm with my wife and my, my kids, and I'm looking around uh, with my daughter in the female section, and I notice a man in, a, in a, another young female, and something just doesn't seem off. Maybe she's constantly looking to him, or he's dictating what she can wear, or keeping a very close either watch or even kind of hand on her arm to make sure she doesn't go anywhere. It's little things like that that really can kind of tip you off like some, something is wrong because having been to many stores, and we all have in my life, there's not a whole lot of people who dictate exactly, okay, you can buy this, you can't buy that, or holding on to somebody's arm, uh, which is actually something I've seen before with the trafficking victim is the individual is holding onto their arm, kind of guiding them where they can go. Uh, not many people in my life I see who control the movements of their, their child in that manner, especially someone who at the time I would assume was 13 or 14 years old. That individual is usually allowed to, if not walk completely freely, walk freely next to their parent is what they would choose to do. So it's really goes back to the old saying of see something, say something. And I realize in the society we're at now, sometimes that can be a risky thing, but it's all about the way you approach it. If you walk up to the individual and say something, that's not the right means of see something, say something. It's going to somebody, whether it's the manager or law enforcement, or if the store has a security guard, saying something to them. So the most valuable tool you have at your disposal really is your eyes and your ability to have the courage to speak up to the right person. Excellent. Bex, any final thoughts? I mean, this has just been incredibly informative. Um, I, you know, as someone with an emergency management background, I usually am pretty aware of my surroundings. I don't <laughs> generally like to sit on my phone unless I'm like sitting on a train, but even then I'm usually eyeing everybody that walks in. Um, but I still don't know that even, even with that knowledge that I would be able to, to have picked out, you know, a case of human trafficking. Um, so to, I just appreciate the knowledge that you've, that you've brought tonight. It's been really, really informative. I agree. Jamie? Well, I just, um, I appreciate Adam coming on the show and sharing his experience and, and some of the information that he can impart to us and our listeners. And um, we will make sure we get the links 
to some of the information that he can make available for us um, because this is the kind of thing that um, you need to keep in the back of your mind all the time when you're in a response situation, when you're just um, doing, um, you know, regular calls in between major events. Um, this this is something that goes on all the time. So we definitely want to make sure we um, stay aware of things. Um so, um, Adam, thanks for coming on the show and, and um, sharing your information with us. Yeah, thank you. And I, I guess I would just end with, with two key point takeaways I try to share that I think could really make a difference, especially to first responders. This is the first one. If they're one-on-one, try to get them alone, whether it's say, hey, I need to look over this individual for an exam or, hey, uh, we need to ask you some questions about what you can recall about the storm or the, the hurricane or however the, the proper way of a first responder phrasing that I'm sure there's the right way. I don't know how to say it. So it may sound goofy, but I know you all know the proper way to approach somebody. And the second thing is if it's in a group, if you're in a big group, a disaster, you almost think Disney world, look for the, usually the male, uh, a male kind of scanning the crowd. What he is looking for is young children or young females or males, who kind of look lost or alone. Those are his prime victims, and that is likely who he's going to go for. So if you see in a disaster area, and it could be a father looking for their kid, always be very cautious about these things, but the, the safest approach is to kind of single out the child. Go find that alone child and kind of get them somewhere to where they'll be safe, and that really cuts back on the chance anything bad happens to them. So those are the two, two big takeaways I'd have for, for my first responders out there. Amen. Jamie? Yeah, and, and um, you know, this is, again, comes down to training um, and really something that, you know, we, we've identified, I think, uh, a hole in the type of training we have in, in our, both in our initial training and in our ongoing continuing education. Um, it's something that I wish Joe was here because I'd like to see if this is something he addresses with Paragon Medical Education Group. He he covers so many things. I have to think that this is something that he could at least work into his scenarios at some point um, just to build awareness, if nothing else. And um, so we'll, we'll definitely be touching base with him about that in a future episode. Um, in the meantime, I want to thank them for their continued support of the show and sponsorship and um, urge you all to check out the training and availability resources that they have at Paragon Medical Group. Um, you can go to paragonmedicalgroup.com, Paragon Med EDU on Twitter. And of course we have links to them in the disasterpodcast.com and can be reached via our Facebook group as well. Um, definitely want to catch up with them. Um, Adam, is there a site that people can go to that you're associated with that you'd like to leave um, as a, a final place that they can go? At the time, so we are revamping our human trafficking collaborative network website. That is usually where you can find me. Uh, I do have a lot of websites in terms of, of valuable information I will be sharing with you and Sam to pass on to everybody. So that'll probably be the best route to go to go about things. But as always, if folks have questions, you all have my, my email, my contact information. So please feel free to reach out. Um, I'm with you. I think some sort of training, some sort of course would be invaluable in, in the U.S. to everybody in the first responder and medical profession to have just some sort of training on what the signs are. So I think that's a great place to start. Yeah, those extra links will be great, Adam. Thank you for that. 
we'll definitely get that all in the show notes for this episode and um, we'll post them as well on our Facebook group. So we'll make sure all these links get, get posted around the community. Um, so um, Becky, where can folks catch up with you if they want to find out more about what you're working on? Yep. Over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and probably LinkedIn is the best place. Uh, Becky DePodwin. And of course the disaster podcast, Facebook group. Great. And Sam. All of the above under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, certainly in our Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Adam, if you're on Facebook, that would be an excellent place for you to go because people may have questions they can ask you directly. So there you go. Jamie. And you can find me under the handle Podmedic uh, under most social media locations and sites. Uh, friend, follow, or otherwise catch up with me there. And, of course, uh, DisasterPodcast.com where you can subscribe to the episodes. Um, make sure you get notifications of future episodes. There's a link to subscribe on whatever mobile device you might use right below the audio player on each episode page at DisasterPodcast.com. So take advantage of those resources and links as well. Um, Sam, thanks for pulling this together. Thanks for having Adam on the show. I think it's uh, just a great topic and probably one we need to revisit um, more frequently than just the one time now that we've covered it in the eight years we've been doing this show. Well, Adam and I will be in touch working on other things. So if we would like to have him back, I think that'll be an easy thing to do. Right, Adam? Yep. I got no plans of leaving this career anytime soon, so I'll be here. (laughs) 